Amen. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of our study in the book of Philippians, and the title of this series has been Living a Life Worthy of the Gospel. And there was nobody in the New Testament that did that better than the Philippian church. This is a group of incredibly mature believers in Christ, and yet, though they were mature, Paul encouraged them to grow in their faith all the more, to keep growing. There would never be an end to their growth in their faith in, in Christ, at least in this age. He encouraged them to, and not only encouraged them, but through studying God's word, he encouraged us as well, to all of us to be unified in Christ, to work together to propagate the gospel for Christ, to serve each other as unto Christ, and to make our primary goal in life to be like Christ. And finally, as we've been studying over the last several weeks, to think in every way like Christ. Now he's about to wrap it all up, and he's going to encourage them in one more area, and this is in the area of Christ-like giving. And what's interesting about this is he, he, doesn't, he doesn't give any instructions on how to do it. All he does is rejoice about the giving that they were already taking part in. They had mastered this Christ-like giving. They were a group of people who had already accomplished that. And so the question for us really this morning, and, and what I want to be able to answer in all of this text is, is why was he rejoicing? Why was their gift to him something that caused him to break out in joy. And let me give you the answer. I know the suspense is killing you. Let me just kind of give you the answer to that up front, and then we'll kind of unpack it as we go through the text in our service. Paul rejoiced because of what the, because the Philippians giving, uh, because of what the Philippians giving did for them. He was rejoicing because of what the Philippians giving did for them. Now, look at the word of God, if you will, in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Paul talks about joy all the way through the book, about him rejoicing in the people and them rejoicing in him. He's commanding them to rejoice in all things. It's one of the major themes of the book. And we've seen him, him rejoice over many things, but now he's rejoicing like he's never rejoiced before. He's rejoicing greatly. And the reason of that is because he's received this really generous gift from the Philippians. Now, if you haven't been with our study, let me kind of catch you up. Uh, Paul, the one that's writing this very letter, is in, is in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome. And he's there for no other reason than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the problem for him is when you're in prison, it's a little hard to work to earn an income. W would you agree? I think that's at least what, what Dan told me. And so it's very difficult to, to be able to do it. And so, so, so he, can't, he can't really work. And, and they weren't, it's not like our prisons where it's, everything's nice and taking care of food and medical health, all that type of stuff. Uh, he had to fend for himself. And so he had no way of being able to even feed himself or have money to feed himself. So the Philippians found out about this need. And it began to stir their heart. And this was a very impoverished, very poor church. And they take up this, this very sacrificial offering for Paul. And, and what they do is they send one of their own people, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, all the way from Philippi to Rome, which would have taken no less than 30 days of traveling, of walking, to be able to make that trip. And what we find is he became incredibly sick, even to the point of death, to be able to get this money to Paul. This church loved Paul immensely. And finally, he gets there, he arrives, he gives him the offering, and he busts out in joy. Now, the question is, what is at the root of his rejoicing? 
Now, I know at first when you read that, you say, well, listen, Pastor Mike, isn't it obvious? If somebody shows up and travels a long distance to come to your house to give you a bunch of money, you would be rejoicing as well. Well, touche. Yes, I, I probably would if somebody came and gave me all of that. And there's no doubt that Paul is so grateful to the Philippians for their sacrificial gift and the fact that it's meeting their need. And no doubt he would have been worshiping God and praising God that God used the Philippians to meet their need. He knew ultimately God would supply all of that. But that is not at the root of why he spontaneously combusts in joy. The reason that he does is not because of what this gift does for him. It's because what he knows this gift does for the Philippians that are actually giving it. There's a subtle hint of it in the very next ver- in that verse when he says, that's why he says that he rejoices in the Lord and not that I rejoice in the gift. Right. Why? Because when he says, I rejoice in the Lord, he's saying, your giving demonstrates three things. Your giving demonstrates that God was working through them that God was working for them, and that God had worked in them in kind of like a past tense type thing. Let's see how he kind of lays this argument out. Look at verse 14. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to identify that this wasn't the first time that they had given to him. These were an immensely benevolent people. And when we pick up in verse 14, he says this. He says, yet it, has, it is kind of you to share my trouble And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you. What Paul sees in their giving in this particular verse is that it demonstrated that God was working through them. That what, he, what he's explaining there is when Paul first went to Macedonia and he first began to bring the gospel to Philippi and people began to get saved and the church was planted there, it wasn't the only church in Macedonia that he planted. He began to go from Philadelphia to several other cities, planting churches, people come to faith in Christ. But when he left to go to a different region, this was the only church that continued to, he says, share and partner with him. What he's trying to get across is, he says, listen, what I accomplish on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're partnering with me. Now stop and think about that for a moment. This is the apostle Paul. This isn't Mike Kwiatkowski, all right? This is, this is, you see the difference, right? Greater, lesser. That's an argument from that. And so what we see is Paul sits there, and what did Paul do? Well, while he's in prison, they support him to give him enough food to be able to eat and medical care and care for him and clothing so that he's able to write four of the New Testament books in which you and I, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world are now studying. I've received emails. I've even had somebody out in the, in the hallway sit back and thank you for not saying, I hope this doesn't make your head explode, but I've really enjoyed the study in Philippians. They didn't say that. They just said, this has been a blessing to my life. Well, guess what? Don't thank me. Thank the Philippians. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I can tell, I'm confident, and the reason I'm rejoicing with you is because in your giving, it demonstrates that God is working through you to accomplish the Great Commission and to impact lives of other people, and there is no way that those Philippians could have ever, in a million years, understood 
that there were people halfway around the world 2,000 years later that still would be coming to faith in Jesus Christ and growing in their faith based on the gift that they had ultimately given. And so he knows he's rejoicing because it demonstrates that God had been working through them, but it also demonstrates that God was working for them, that God was working for them. And, and notice the next line. He says, even in Thessalonica, he says, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So it didn't just stop while he was in Macedonia. When he left there and he, and he went to Thessalonica, he would still continue to receive support from this particular church, which was an amazing thing, not just once, he says, but once and again. And he says, not that I seek the gift. Here's the emphasis that he keeps emphasizing through this whole thing. Hey, and, and this is what a preacher has to do. I'll get to this in just a minute. He goes, not that I want personally your money. You see how a preacher would have to say that, right? He says, not personally that I'm excited for what it does for me. And he's going to get to why that is. Not that he's not appreciative, but he says, because of what it does for you. And notice what he says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here he's confident and he's rejoicing because God was working for them. What do you mean? As, as they're focusing on God's work, he says that he's excited because as they're focusing on God's work, as they're giving to God's work, God is working in heaven for them to prepare a place for them. And what he's doing is he's accrediting it to their account in heaven. What God is doing is storing up treasures for them in heaven. Jesus taught on this in Matthew chapter 6, didn't he? Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in to steal. You ever have something really, really great and your kids come along and they mudge it up? I made that, that word mudge. I don't know what that means. It just came out. All right, so I hope that's not bad. But anyway, they just come up and, and it breaks and it shatters and something happened. Or you had a vehicle that you really, really loved and your wife backed into it. I mean, you, you understand what I'm saying? All right. Some of you might, might know these kind of things. And what it does, that's the raw rust. That's the, the thief that, I'm not calling my wife a thief, but uh, it, that, those are the things where it just, it just destroys it. Doesn't, and he's talking about storing up in heaven. Do you understand that this is a reality of us? That whatever we're pouring into here now, hey, fine, great, it's a blessing of God. Enjoy it while you have. It's not going to last. Only that which we do and investing for the kingdom of God will ultimately last. He says, as you're working here, God's working on your behalf there, and not only there, but here as well. In verse 18, notice he says, I have received full payment and more. I was, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. I, I love this. Here's an act of worship. You really want to worship God? Here's one of them in our, in our tithes and offerings. He says, a fragrant, offer, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Note this last part. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is, is in, and that's always our fear. If I give, then how will I have enough? If I try to meet that need, then will I have enough? Remember who it is that he's writing this to. He's writing to an immensely impoverished people. They barely have two nickels to be able to rub together, and yet they're giving and they're giving and they're giving. And he goes, I want to assure you, don't ever think that your giving is going to get you into a deeper hole financially. Because my God will supply all of your needs, and he is a God with infinite, unlimited resources. Do you see Do you see why Paul's rejoicing? Paul's rejoicing not because of what the gift did for him. 
but because of what the gift is doing for them and that it's demonstrating that God is working through them for the advancement of the gospel and God is working for them, not only in the life to come, but in this life now, taking care of them now and taking care of them then. And finally, he says this last thing, in that God had worked in them. I'm using that in past tense. When he comes here and he talks about the fact that they have an account in heaven, that means that they're citizens of heaven, right? Which means that this idea of sacrificial giving is a demonstration of fruit which is consistent with true repentance and salvation. Do you want to know evidence about whether you're truly born again or not? You have a heart that desires to sacrificially give to the purposes of God. Now, some of you will sit back and go, can you back that up biblically? Just give me five or ten minutes to try, okay? Five or ten minutes just to be able to try. Let me give you two things. Number one, this church was an example for not only us, but for all the other churches in the New Testament that Paul would go to. He would use them as an example. Yeah, you want to know what it looks like to sacrificially give? This is what Christian giving looks like. And he would keep pointing to the church at Philippi. Let me give you an example of that. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he begins to mention that he had collected an offering from those churches in Macedonia, the primary one being in Philadelphia, that they had taken up a love offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And he says, and this is how he describes it. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Do you know what that means? It usually, according to your means is, hey, this is what I have. This is what I can afford to be able to give. Beyond your means is, this is what I cannot afford to give. I can't afford to give this. He says, even beyond their means, and note this, and he says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part and the relief of the saints. Now listen, you know that you've mastered this giving thing when you begin to beg the preacher for the opportunity to give. You got that? Now, now what's funny is, uh, and when I first wrote that and said, when you begin to beg, can I, honest to goodness, I've had folks here, many of you, I'm looking at some of them who have begged me for the opportunity to be able to give. They sat there and said, Here, here's how it goes. Mike, if there's a family in need, if there's a time in need, please don't hesitate to come to us. We may not be able to meet every need, but we want an opportunity to be able to meet it. That's, that's begging. Give me an opportunity to be able to do it. We've had folks in our church say, are we doing anything about all the flooding over in Louisiana? If there is, I want to be able to be a part of it. What are they doing? In essence, the same thing. We want to be able to give. It's a demonstration, once again, when you are begging for the opportunity to be able to give, it means that God's worked in you. It's a demonstration. Now, notice what he does. After he tells them this, he then tells them to follow the example. In, cha- in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 7, he then says this. Follow with me. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in the act of grace also. What is he saying that you need to also grow in? Your act of giving. Your act of giving. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, as a believer in Jesus Christ, there will always be fruit. You will always continue to grow, and there will always be more evidence that you are truly a born-again believer. They go, as you grow, you're going to begin to think more like Christ, speak more like Christ, act more like Christ. And then at the end, is he says, and you will also continue to sacrificially give like Christ. It's evidence that a person has truly been regenerated. They've truly been born again. Let me give you another example. This is a little bit more illustrative. This is with two different stories in the Bible. One is with the rich young ruler. Do you remember this story? 
Rich Young Ruler, I, I've, I've actually shared it several times in the last couple of years, but let me, let me just do it again. Rich Young Ruler comes to Jesus. He's got it all together. Wonderful portfolio, wonderful church member. And he comes up to him and he says, oh, good teacher, how can I have eternal life? I want to know how I have eternal life. And Jesus says, you know the law. Follow the law. And he begins to list out the Ten Commandments. And the man then at that point says this. He says, or Jesus turns to him and says, you know what? You, indeed, you have kept all these since you were just a little kid. There's one thing that you lack. He says, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And how does the man respond? His whole countenance falls. What are you asking me to do? You're asking me to give? Now, the problem is Jesus was exposing his idolater's heart. He was exposing the fact that he loved material things and he loved his money more than he ultimately loved God. That's basically the point. Understand that Jesus was not saying, if you sell all you have and give to the poor, then you will be saved. That's not what he's saying. Are we clear on that? What he's saying is, go and sell all you have and follow me. Because if you can do that, it's a demonstration you've truly repented and now it will be evidence that, that the salvation has come to you. Let me give you another example. He walks away, can't do it, can't give it up. Another story, Zacchaeus. Now, whoever, when I get to heaven and I find out whoever wrote the song about Zacchaeus, I'm going to strangle them in the name of Jesus, okay? Because all we ultimately know about Zacchaeus is he was a wee little man, right? And climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And so this is basically all we know. And we don't even know the significance of the story, was he a wee little man? Yes, he was a little wee little man. Yes, you know, the Bible tells us. And so he climbs up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. Jesus comes by. He says, I'm, say it with me. Um, go into your house today. There we go. We got it out of our system, right? So now we don't know what happened in, in, at dinner. We don't know what happened. We don't know if it was chaos or it was quiet. Or we don't know. It was kind of a come to Jesus moment. We don't know. All we know is the result of it. When Zacchaeus gets done with meeting with Jesus, he says to Jesus in Luke chapter 19 and verse 8, he says, Behold, Lord, the half of all of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, there's no inclination that Jesus said anything about giving anything away. But this man in his conviction, knowing what his God used to be, he sits back and he comes back and he says, I'll give half. Somebody says, well, he says he's only going to give half. And Jesus said, whole. Um, Okay, well, the reason he can't give whole to the poor is because he's a crook. All right, and he is made thief. He's a thief, and he's stolen from people. And part of not only being benevolent to the poor, but now he wants to pay back four times what he stole from all of these people. That's pretty much going to take the whole. Now, what I want you to understand is this man, before he met Christ, had the same idolatrous heart as the rich young ruler. There was no difference between them. In fact, he was a tax collector, which means that everybody in his culture, including his own family, hated his guts because he would rob his own mother in order to be able to get money. And so everybody couldn't stand this guy. You love money if you care nothing about everybody around you, yes? What does he do when he comes to face with Jesus Christ? I'll give all of it away. Every last bit of it, I'll give it away. But don't miss the point, because some of you are very worried right now. Is, is the point to give half to the poor and pay back four times? That's not even the point of the text. might be helpful, but it's not the point of the text. The point of the text comes with the words of Jesus. Jesus says these words, verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house.
Salvation has come to this house today. Jesus is not saying, because of your willingness to give half of what you have and to be able to repay those that you've wronged four times, that that will earn your salvation. He's not saying that at all. He's saying the fact that you are genuinely willing to give it all away. And Jesus, only Jesus knows the heart. He goes, is an indication that salvation had come to that man and he was truly born again. An author says it much better than I can. He went into Jesus mastered by the passion to get. He left mastered by the passion to give. Something wonderful happened inside that house with Jesus that day. Zacchaeus had been regenerated. That means he had been born again, given a new heart and new desires. And he says, and the immediate evidence of his new heart was his desire to give. Was his desire to give. Do you see now why Paul is rejoicing so greatly in their sacrificial giving? He's rejoicing because it demonstrates that God had been working through them, used them to propagate the gospel. It's why God was, not only that, but that God was working for them and in storing up for them not only treasures in heaven, but making sure that he meticulously takes care of every need for them. And then finally, and most of all, that it shows that God had worked in them. The fact that they could sacrificially give in such a radical way demonstrated that salvation had come to each and every one of them. No wonder he's rejoicing. Now, at this point, when he gets done, he has to clarify some things. This is what preachers always have to do. Look, I, you might be visiting for, for the very first time through this study. The very first time we've talked about money in months, and it's just so happy that you're blessed to be able to come for that one sermon, all right? It's just kind of the way that it works. And Paul's got to clarify some things here. Did you know what he said in the beginning of, of, of verse 1 when he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me? Does that sound a little iffy for anyone, right? He says, hey, I'm glad that finally now you got around to actually caring about me and sending something. Uh, if you've had a grand, this is like how my grandparents used to work. God bless them. I love them so much. And, and this is how they would do. My mom would be like, hey, man, you haven't called your mom and grandma and grandpa in like a month. Go ahead and call them. And I fretted that call. Because all the call was going to be is, why don't you ever call us anymore? Why don't you ever call us anymore? It's been so long. How are we supposed to keep up with you if you don't call? Do you not love us? And we're sitting there going, I'm calling you right now, right? And so Paul's not doing the same thing. He's not pulling a grandma or grandpa. He's not sitting there going, going hey, listen, about time. About time you, 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 you showed that you cared for, for, for Paul. He's not doing that at all. In fact, he goes very carefully to try to make sure that he clarifies his statement. Now, the reason that he has to clarify it is because he can't erase it. I just understand this in context. He's writing on papyrus with ink. He can't break out the monkey tip eraser, erase it, and just go, okay, let me reword that, all right? As he's writing and people are in prison, people are like, dude, I don't think that sounds very good. You may want to back up on that a little bit. And he goes, oh, I already wrote it. Okay, okay, let me explain. Then this is what he does. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He wants to make sure, hey, look, I'm not suggesting that you didn't care for me. I know you cared for me, but you had no opportunity. opportunity. The point is, he sits back and he says, you know, nobody really knows why they didn't have an opportunity. I think the best guess, my best guess, is that they literally were so poor, they did not have a dime, a nickel, or a penny to be able to actually send. That's what he means by that there was no opportunity. They just didn't have any. 
somehow now, whether they're selling something or things becoming a little bit better, they're able to muster and be able to get some money, and now they have the opportunity, and now they're ultimately sending it to him. So he has to clarify his words. But more than anything, he tries to do in this whole section is he tries to clarify his motives. Through the whole thing, he says, as a pre- see, Paul is, experiences the same pain and the same strain that every preacher of the gospel does. The moment that you begin to talk about money and giving, all of a sudden, everyone's mind goes to, he's in this for the money. There they go, the church asking for money again. And it's so incredibly unfair. Can I just share that with you? It's so incredibly unfair because not every pastor is corrupt in that way. In fact, I believe it's the very few that are that corrupt, that has spoiled it for so many. And what it, and what it does, it endangers a pastor to be able to encourage his people to be benevolent because he rejoices in what it shows about those individuals. It, it, it takes away his ability to be able to encourage them to give so that he can indeed see and encourage them that God is using them, that, that, that God is working for them, and that God is working, and God has certainly worked in them. And so Paul's got to clarify this. And so this is what he says. Just follow along with me. He says, he says here, he says, not that I am speaking from being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. Now, the con- word content in the book of Philippians to the Philippians would have meant a great deal. And the reason is, is because there were Greek philosophers, Stoic philosophers, that were walking around the day talking about the purpose in life is to become content. Here's what they would teach. You need to become completely and fully self-sufficient, not dependent on anyone or anything. Does that sound familiar? So it sounds like a culture in which we live. Paul comes and says, hey, listen, I'm going to prove to you that I'm not about receiving and taking your money. Why? Because I've learned to become content in all things. But he translates it. He, he, he defines it differently. It's not about being self-sufficient. It is about not needing anything or any else, any, anyone here on earth. But what he's su- suggesting is this, is that it's not a self-sufficiency, it's a Christ-sufficiency. His being content comes from knowing that Jesus Christ is fully and completely sufficient in all things. He doesn't need anything else. That's what his point is when he talks about being content. He says, and this is demonstrated through the rest of what he writes in the beginning. Do you remember? That's why he can say things like this. All the stuff that I lost by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I consider them to be what? Rubbish and light of the surpassing knowledge of knowing him. It's why he can sit there and he can say, truthfully, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says to live is all about Christ. Therefore, if I die and lose everything around me, it's gain because I get the very one thing that I need and I want and I enjoy. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And as long as I have him, guess what? I become content in all things. He moves on, he says, look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. Boy, did he know how to be brought low. Look, we've got some folks in our church, and and look, I'm not belittling uh, maybe the difficulties financially or whatever it is that you're in right now, but I pretty much guarantee it's not as low as Paul had become. We're talking about with Paul, imprisonments, beatings, shipwrecks, floggings, stonings, the list goes on. He goes, I know, he goes, he goes, he goes, I know how to be brought low. I, he goes, I've experienced it for the majority of my Christian life. He says, I also know how to abound. Now, this is a little bit more difficult to be able to define, 
Because it's hard to find places in the scripture where Paul was really, you know, doing pretty well for himself. You know what I'm talking about? You know, financially, you just, you don't really find it. What he might be referring to is he might be referring to the time that he had in Philippi. That he actually stayed in the house of, a, uh, of Lydia, a very w- uh, wealthy businesswoman. And, and that might have been it. Most likely what he's saying is, I know how to abound. And the way that Paul would ultimately define that is this. Anything above the absolute necessities of life is abounding in abundant life. It's, it's way above. It's a way above any of that. It's probably how he's defining it. But now what he says, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. What is the secret? The secret is being completely and fully satisfied with the person of Jesus Christ. To know him, to love him fully, to want nothing more than him, to want to glorify him, to want to live for him, and one day want to die to be able to see him. That's Paul's secret. It's just about Christ. It's what he wants more than anything else. And if he can have Christ, then it doesn't matter what happens to everything else. But notice, he says, he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I think this is an important lesson for us. What he's saying is whether he has a lot or whether he has a little, he's learned to become content. I would dare say for the most of us in here, our biggest problem is learning the secret of being content with much, not with a little. There's almost nobody in here who would be at the level of poverty that Paul and the Philippians were at that he's speaking at. We're completely speaking a different language. The difficulty is not to learn to become content with so little. The difficulty that you and I struggle with is to become content with so much. We have so much, and still this week, we're thinking of all the things that we would love to be able to save up and buy. We've received so much, but yet our minds are still planning so much security, but we're still leaking. Maybe we could get just a little bit more security. We have so much stuff, but maybe how can I build something or how can I get something that I can get a little bit more? Is this not preaching at all to anyone? It must really be boring or something. I don't know what it is, but I'm not feeling love. Okay, I'm not feeling love. Love me, all right? So what Paul is ultimately saying here is he says, it's, it's, it's not about this. I've learned to become, I've learned to be, I know what it is to be this way. Now, here's my question for you. Because Paul goes on for the rest of it, and he keeps saying, hey, man, it's not about me. You paid me in full, verse 18. In other words, stop giving. You don't need to give me anything more. You don't need to give any more. You've given too much. I love that because as a pastor, I've done that. People say, hey, how was that need? Is everything going okay with that need? Yeah, man. Our church is completely met. Okay, just let me know if you need any more. It's the same heart. Man, praise God that I'm in a church like that. I just praise Jesus that I can shepherd people that have hearts just like that. It's an amazing thing to be able to do. But why is Paul talking about all of this, this being contended stuff? By the way, we, we got to get to that last verse, verse 18. This is Tim Tebow's verse. Uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Probably the most uh, misquoted verse in all the Bible. Would you agree? No. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is it's not supposed to be used for the power team to lift a 500-pound log above their head, okay? It's not, even for Tim Tebow, love him, all right, for him to throw a football 80 yards. It's not for somebody to supernaturally hit a, hit, hit a baseball out of the park. And this is what everybody does. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Let me tell you what he's saying here. You can do all that God calls you to do, whether difficult, not difficult, in good times and bad times. 
You can do it all when you are fully and completely content in the person of Jesus Christ. That's his point. You could do what he calls you to do, even sacrificial giving. You can do. But people don't like that. How many Christians go around all the time going, man, the Bible says that. There's no way that I can do that. Romans 4.13. You can do all things through Christ. Well, I'd rather that apply to, you know, I got a basketball game coming up. I want to drain some threes. I'd rather quote it then. No, quote it when you know very clearly what God is calling you to do and you don't think you can do it to know that you can do it in Christ what it is that he's ultimately calling you to do. Now, here's my question, and we're going to close on this. The nodding and sleeping is letting me know it's time to end. So let me, let me just say this. See, I can take clues. I can take them, um, even when they're not subtle. So uh, the, 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 the idea is this. Why does he go? He, in the beginning, just follow me. He begins to say, I'm rejoicing over your giving because of what it does for you. Then he spends all of this time saying, hey, hey, but it's not about me. It's not about you giving to me. It's not whatever. It's all about, it's all about me being content. I think it's one to defend himself as preachers feel that uncomfortable aspect of talking about money. But I think the other thing is this. The secret to giving is not only being satisfied in Christ, but it's learning to be content in Christ fully. If you're not content, you can't give. If you're not content with what you already have, what you've already been given, you can't give because the reason you're not giving is you're holding to be able to get something else and the getting that one thing else is ultimately what you're hoping for and it demonstrates that you're not content with what it is that you already ultimately have. Does that make any sense at all? I can't give because I'm not content. There's something else. Let me just tell you something about the something else thing. It's a big pipe dream. And every single person in here would admit it, that every time that you and I think that there is one more thing that is going to be the icing on the cake that is finally going to satisfy that car, that house, that vacation, or what it does, all it does is give you a little bit of a smile, and then all of a sudden you're on to the very next thing. It's not the life that God wants any of us to live. He wants us to be satisfied completely and utterly in him. And when we are, we're sacrificial givers. In the very beginning of this, I said that this particular message was about giving like Christ. Why? Because Christ who had everything set it apart to become nothing and to give his very life and give his very all on his li- in his life and death on the cross so that we who were poor might become rich. That's the whole idea. It's living out the gospel by being sacrificial givers, by following and imitating Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. God, I pray, Lord, I feel so much like Paul in the fact, only in the sense that I'm talking to a people that I could commend for their immense, incredible giving. But God, as we wrap up, encourage them to do it all the more. God, there were some nervous here today. Some nervous, God, will you take care of it? Look, Scripture right there. Look, we take care of your business, you'll take care of ours. It's the reason why we don't have to fear about anything. God, I pray in the heart of every individual in here, as they learn to faithfully give, give according to their means and even above their means and sacrificial, that they'll understand what is at stake. It's evidence of God working through them. They take part 
they take part in everything that is being done with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that it is, again, that is a demonstration that God is working for them. They need not to worry about anything, either here or in the life to come. God, finally, their ability to give is a demonstration that they have truly been born again because you have placed a new heart in place of an idolatrous heart. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? And we're just going to respond. And that respond is just, just a couple things. Here it is. Number one, it's always a call. If, if you want to be born again, if, if maybe you're working through that salvation, maybe you already are, but you don't know what's going on, we want to share with you, talk with you, share the gospel as clearly as we can with you so that you understand. We just want to counsel with you. Second thing is, is look, if, if, if some of us need to do some repenting, now's the time to do that repenting. For some, it's time to do some great rejoicing in this place. That God, this is an area that we're really not struggling with. I thank you because it demonstrates your hand in my life. Let's do all of those things this morning, all right? Let's, let's respond.